Hey, good to see everybody this morning. Well, today we're going to uh, talk about a person who was modeling the love of God and became famous for it. But what is interesting is this person, we don't know this individual's name, but virtually everybody has heard of him. We have hospitals, we have outreach centers, mission organizations, and even laws that are named after this unnamed person. And the person I'm talking about is the Good Samaritan. His act of love and kindness to someone in need comes from a wonderful little story that Jesus told some some 2,000 years ago. And, And although the biblical text, and this is important to understand, doesn't call him good, that's the adjective that we've added to the story. You'll notice that good is no place in the text, but in the title of that passage, it calls him the Good Samaritan. But as I said, that's the adjective that we have given to this person. Because of his act of love and mercy, he, he did act in an incredibly merciful and good way. Well, as we consider the story that is found this morning in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, it will illustrate for us the kind of extravagant, loving, grace-filled life that Jesus wants each one of us to be living. We'll discover that the story centers around several questions that is asked by a religious kind of person, a, a lawyer that was living his life, and this is important to understand, he was living his life in relationship to God and to others by a system of rules and regulations, and how that kept this one individual, this religious lawyer, from living a life of genuine grace and mercy and love. And so Jesus uses that opportunity to illustrate with a story how we should be modeling an extravagant love of God toward others. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will loan you one. Just raise your hand and they'll put it, they'll get it to you. Want everybody to have the word in front of them. Well, the first thing that we need to understand about how to model God's love, and that's the question we're answering this morning is first of all, it's not about living by a system of rules and regulations. Notice Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, where the biblical text says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, do this, and you'll live. Well, the first thing that we discover here is that the lawyer's question is not entirely driven by the best of motives. You know what I'm talking about? Obviously, is. As Luke was writing and recording this, it's, it's obvious that he came with, with an ulterior motive to put Jesus to the test. And I've discovered over the years, as I'm sure you have as well, that we can ask questions that make us either look very, very smart to impress people, or we can ask questions of other people that make them look really stupid. And although we don't really know what the motive is here on the part of this religious lawyer, we just know that his motives were a bit skewed at this point when he was asking Jesus this question. The lawyer asked, he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this may sound like a a good question, but the intent of the question involves a desire to work at and earn eternal life. 
It's important to understand. You know, but Jesus answered the question by asking the lawyer a question of his own that would redirect the focus to really the heart of the issue here that as he understood this man. Asking the lawyer a question of his own that would redirect the issue to where this man was in this point in time. And so Jesus asks the question, he says, so what do you think? Well, every morning, Orthodox Jews would quote Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which spoke of loving God with all of one's being. But, but this rather shrewd, insightful lawyer here even added the admonition from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, about loving one's neighbor as well. And Jesus says, in response to his answer, he says, good answer. Good answer. Interesting that we read in Matthew chapter 22, 34 to 40, that Jesus was asked by the religious leaders what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus' answer was the same as what this lawyer had just read off to him or stated to him. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And and then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love others. Well, then I think maybe with a twinkle in his eye, Jesus said in verse 28, look at that, to the expert in the law, he says to him, do this, do this, and you'll live, and you'll live, do this and you'll live. Now, we need to realize first that Jesus didn't answer his question. He didn't answer it. Jesus said nothing about inheriting eternal life here. The only thing that he talked about was living a purpose-filled life of love, loving God and loving others. He said nothing about eternal life. Now, there are several different Greek words for live in the Bible. One word means health or a biological life. That's the word bios. And we get our word biology from that Greek word. The other word is zoe, which means a full and a meaningful life. And Jesus, interestingly, used the word zoe here when he spoke to the lawyer. He said, when you are genuinely loving God with your whole being and loving your neighbor as yourself, he says, you will experience a full and a meaningful life in the here and now, saying nothing about eternal life, nothing about eternal life. Doing that won't get you into heaven. Because you can't inherit eternal life by what you do. By fulfilling some system of religious rules which this lawyer was attempting to discover what he had to do in order to inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus avoided that question. You see, a life lived by some system of rules and regulations as this lawyer was was living his life. As we sometimes find ourselves captured by wanting to live by rules and regulations... When we live our lives that way, we can't accept or understand that the things of God, like forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with, with Him, eternal life, is, it's a free gift and it's something that can't be earned or worked for. You see, Jesus never offered a way to heaven through good works. If you've been around Harvest for any length of time, you understand that it's not about doing. It's about being. The lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Please understand, you and I can't do anything to gain eternal life except except receive it freely as a gift. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it is the gift from God so that no one can boast. Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done. You don't have to do anything to inherit something, right? I mean, if you're inheriting something, the reason you are inheriting something is why? Because you're part of the family. That's how you inherit something. If you inherit something, you inherit it because you're part of the family. And the only way to inherit eternal life is to be born into the family of God. Actually, we get adopted into the family, but there's nothing that you or I can do. But once you are in the family, you're an heir. And you're given all of the benefits as an heir and as part of the family. You see, Jesus was issuing a challenge when he said to the lawyer, Do this. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, do this and live. Now, why the challenge? Why do you give the challenge there? Because I think the lawyer knew that he couldn't do it 100% of the time. That even as Jesus set forth just the, the basic principles of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and being, and loving your neighbor as yourself, this guy knew that he couldn't do that 100% of the time. And some people still think that there's something that they can do to gain eternal life. And Jesus says to you, he says to me, do this, keep all the commandments, every single one of them, every single time, every single day, and you'll live. The problem is all of us have already forfeited the chance because we've all fallen far short of that standard. You see, friends, we need some help. You see, gaining eternal life is not a routine Gaining eternal life is not about religion. It's not a religion. It's not a ritual that we go through. Eternal life is not a series or a system of, of good works, regulations. It's about a relationship, about recognizing who Jesus Christ is. We read in John chapter 17, verse 3, when Jesus said, now this is eternal life. And that might be a verse you want to write down. John 17, 3, because Jesus answered the question. He says, now this is eternal life. (laughs) Well, what is eternal life? He says that they may know, not do, but that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not about doing, it's about knowing. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about entering into a relationship with the God of the universe. That's what it's about. This is eternal life that you, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Well, the lawyer may have been loving God in some sort of religious um, fashion here. I mean, he was a part of the Jewish culture, and so there was formality, there were regulations, there were certain elements that, that, that he lived his life by, and he may have been loving God in some formal religious way, but he knew that he fell far short of loving his neighbor as he ought. Well, as Jesus said that he should, and so the lawyer asks a question for clarification's sake knowing that his question wasn't really answered and Jesus was trying to get to the heart of the issue for this man, he asks another question because he fell far short. He asked for clarification. 
Well, I think he's looking for the minimum obedience required to do just enough to get by or just enough to understand. Interesting, a number of years ago when I was teaching a class at Bradley University in the Family Consumer Science Department, um, I would hand out the syllabus, and it was a 400-level class. It was a junior-senior class. And on occasion, I would have a student come up to me after they had gotten the syllabus, and they would kind of ask me the question. they say, uh, Mr. Smith, um, what's the minimum I have to do in order to get by in this class? <laughs> you ever been there yourself or have people like that? What's the minimum I have to do to get by? And the reality is those kinds of questions are an indication of the fact that somebody really didn't want to learn. All they wanted to do was fulfill the basic requirements. No interest in really learning or understanding, but just an interest in getting, checking the box and figuring out what they have to do minimally to get by. And that was really the intent of this lawyer. And that's why he asked this question of clarification. And so we discover that a life that is lived by a system of rules and regulations will always attempt to justify one's attitudes and lack of action and concern for others, which is really, for this man, was the heart of the issue. And that leads to that second question asked of Jesus. And look at verse 29. But desiring to justify himself, to find out what the minimum amount he had to do in order to get by, he said to Jesus... And who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And so the question, who's my neighbor? It really, at that time, addressed a debate among Jewish experts of the law in that day. I mean, rabbis disagreed about who was included in this, in this commandment. Um, exactly who was it that they had to love as a neighbor? They wanted to define and refine and narrow the focus because that would then limit the obligation that they had. Jesus could have gone into some theological discussion with the lawyer and traced the etymological roots of the Hebrew word for neighbor from Leviticus chapter 19, which this lawyer quoted from. And the Jewish lawyer and the crowd that were there that day would have had no trouble with Jesus' answer if he simply said, well, you know, your neighbor is the person who lives close to you, that person who is like you. Well, that's how the Jews interpreted it that day. If Jesus said, your neighbor are all your Jewish friends that live by or around you, everyone would have been satisfied with that answer. But instead of a a theological treatise or a seminar on cultural anthropology here, Jesus tells a simple, poignant story that we're all familiar with. And it begins by illustrating what Jesus was trying to point out to the lawyer, that a life that is lived by and with a system of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts is so utterly frustrated, frustrating and unsatisfying personally and does not and cannot reflect or model God's love. You see, because you can't or you don't generally give to others what you've not experienced yourself. And for this man who was asking these questions and for us who may be asking some of the same kind of questions, we're going, so who's my neighbor? And kind of limiting who it is that I really need to to model God's love to, if you can just define for me that it's only those people that are close by me that I'm good, that I don't really have to expend a lot of extra energy, effort, time, and resources. But you see, that's not the kind of love that God wants us to model. The second point here is to how to model God's love is that it acts in a self-sacrificing way for others. 
It acts in a self-sacrificing way for others. Verses 30 through 37. You know, some liter, uh, literary experts are, you know, they call this the greatest short story ever told and written. Because when you stop to think about it, it includes a, a tragedy. It involves villains, a plot, a plot twist, a hero, and a great ending. The story is much like the ABC News program called, you know, What Would You Do? Have you ever seen that with John Keonis? Love watching that. Because I love to see how people respond to different situations. And, and that show, What Would You Do with John Keonis, it's in the series that you have actors who act out scenes of conflict, illegal activity, or, or someone who's needing help in public. Hidden cameras are placed in different places and videotape the scene and, and it focuses in on whether or not bystanders intervene and, and how they intervene. And I'm just fascinated with how some people just seem to have this, this propensity to ignore anything and everybody for a lot of reasons. Don't know all the reasons. And sometimes when they get back with these folks, they explain why and some people go into long reasons as to why they didn't help. But then you have other people who, who step right in immediately. What we have here in Luke chapter 10 is really a what would you do story. Notice verse 30 and what Jesus says. And here the story begins. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, Jesus in this story doesn't say whether the man is a Jew or a Gentile because in the end, it doesn't really matter who this person was. The text goes on and it says that they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Well, the fact that they removed his clothes created a problem for the Jews. Well, because in that day, a person's cultural identity was really revealed by how they dressed. And even today, Arabs and Jews dress differently. And the fact that this man was naked prevented passerbyers from, from determining if he was a Jew or a Gentile. That's an important part of the story here. But notice what happens next in verses 31 and 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him pass by on the other side. Well, here are the first two surprises to the audience that was uh, there listening to this story that day. Here you have two religious professionals, the supposed good guys in the minds and the thinking of the Jews that were there that day, they surely would have helped this, this hurting man. After all, it was their job, the religious sort of guys. But they didn't help him. They didn't help him. They saw him lying there, and they walked on the other side of the road, ignoring the, the man. Why? Well, some have supposed could have been that because the man had been stripped of his clothes that they may have feared that he might be a gentile and orthodox jews hated gentiles and so they wouldn't have even touched him could have been the reason one of the reasons or maybe the man could be dead and if he was touched by a religious leader at that point in time um, he would have been unclean for seven days and could not have engaged in his religious responsibilities Or maybe he was in a hurry, late for dinner, had some other thing going on that, that he said, man, I just can't stop to help because I've got some, something else that I need to get to and care for. Or it could have been a hundred other reasons, but none of which are good, are decent, are respectful. 
none of which are loving one's neighbor, as Jesus had just instructed. Now, Jewish storytelling usually followed a pattern of threes, and so after two failures, the audience that was there that day would have been expecting the next character to do a little bit better. And surely they expected the third traveler to, I think, have been a simple Jewish farmer. Not some religious sort of kind of guy, but this simple Jewish farmer who would have stopped by to help the wounded stranger. But in the story, Jesus has another huge surprise. And it's a big one. It's huge. Jesus said in verse 33, but a Samaritan. A Samaritan. It's kind of like, whoa, I imagine the jaws of the audience must have dropped at that because the kind of animosity that exists between Israelis and Palestinians today closely follows how poorly Jews and Samaritans got along in Jesus' time. I mean, Jewish hatred towards Samaritans was both racial and religious, and it was deep. The hatred was huge. Samaritans were were half-breeds. They were a mixture of Jewish and Assyrian blood. And when you were a Jew, it was all about the purity of, of the lineage. And so these folks were despised and just absolutely hated. Well, the Samaritan should have been the villain in this story that Jesus was telling that day, at least in the eyes of the Jews. But Jesus makes the Samaritan a hero. A hero. What's also interesting, if you go back to Luke chapter 9, in verses 51 to 56, there was an earlier encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan village. He sends a couple of his disciples into this Samaritan village to make preparations as Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. And they rejected his disciples and rejected Jesus here. And here you have James and John who, who come back to Jesus and inform him as to what they had done, as to how they didn't want Jesus to come into their village. And so James and John are like, well, hey, then let's call down fire from heaven and burn up this place. And what Jesus does is he rebukes James and John. And so as Jesus tells a story, not only is his story being directed to this religious lawyer here, but the story is also, I think, being directed to his own disciples who earlier were all about calling down fire from heaven. And Jesus uses the Samaritan as the hero in the story to sort of bring home the point to them that you have to really be loving others. Well, look at verse 33. The Samaritan who should have been the villain in the story, becomes the hero because in verse 33 it says, And as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Or the NIV says, he had pity on the man. And you see, a life modeling the love of God sees the need and not the inconvenience it may cause. It sees the need and not the inconvenience that it may cause for the For the priest and the Levite, we don't know what the reason was, but it was obviously something that they were unwilling to address and deal with. But the Samaritan, he saw the need, not the inconvenience, and he responded. You know, this traveler, the Samaritan, had obviously had some business to care for. You know, things to do, places to go, people to meet. But when he saw the man, he felt compassion, felt pity for him. 
And the word compassion literally means that he got this sinking feeling in the, in the pit of his stomach. And it's as if he was imagining that he himself was this man who was laying by the side of the road, half dead. That's compassion. That was pity. And he had this sense of, of obligation that he couldn't just walk away. He couldn't just walk by. We also discover that a life that models the love of God, which a Samaritan was doing, acts in tangible, self-sacrificing ways when confronted with a person's need. Notice what the text says in verse 34. It says that he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. I mean, travelers usually didn't carry first aid kits and bandages with them when they traveled then, and the wounded man was naked, and so obviously this traveler took some of his own clothes and ripped them into strips to be tied around the wounds of the stranger. His oil and wine came from the meager food supply that he traveled with, and he used that money for something else. I'm sure that was a plan that he had, but he used that stuff to cleanse the wounds and revive the stranger. Obviously, the man was so injured that he couldn't walk. Something else we discover about this act of the Samaritan, a life that was modeling the love of God, it doesn't consider the cost, but the contribution it makes to the person's life. I mean, look at verse 35. The next day he took two denarii, which is about two days' wages, and that would have cared for the man in an inn at that point in time, for about a month. Two days wages would have provided for about 24 to 30 days of care for this man. It says, and he gave it to the innkeeper. I'm sure the Samaritan had planned to use the money for something else, but the need of the wounded traveler really superseded his own needs. You see, modeling the love of God doesn't consider the cost, but it considers the contribution it makes to the person's life. Two years ago, when we rallied the church, our congregation, to deliver gifts to needy families, one of our impact groups was delivering gifts to a single mom in the Creve Corps area. And as the group was walking up to the house with the gifts around Christmas time, they noticed that the car in the driveway and one of the tires on that car was almost flat. Well, as they gave the the gifts to the family and talking with the woman, she mentioned how she needed to to go and run some errands. Well, a couple of guys in the group told her that her tire on the car was almost flat and they'd be more than happy to change the tire for her. Well, as they went to change the tire, they discovered that the spare was in terrible shape. So they go, okay. As they looked at the other tires too, they go, not good. So they're at a point of decision there. Do they just still put the terrible spare tire on and walk away? They didn't do that. They kind of got together and they said, hey, let's go put some new tires on this car for this single mom. They did. As they got into the car to go take it, to go get tires put on the thing, they noticed that the gas gauge was on W, which is walk. (laughs) Um, it was empty. And so they stopped and they filled the car up with gas and had tires put on the thing. 
came back and the woman was in tears. She was blown away by this incredible act of kindness. And you see, when we're modeling the love of God, it doesn't consider the cost involved, but the contribution it makes to a person's life. And it's about self-sacrifice. Well, as we walk back to the text here, you know, we also see that a life that models the love of God cares enough to make a lasting difference and not just enough to get by. As was the purpose of this uh, lawyer's question, he goes, I want to know just enough to get by to sort of have God's pleasure shine on me in my life. But when we truly model the love of God, it cares enough to make a lasting difference and not just to get by. Look at the last part of verse 35. It says there, the Samaritan says, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. It cares enough to make a lasting difference, not just enough to get by. You know, the easy thing would have been for the Samaritan traveler to have simply done enough to ease his own conscience. Like we, like me, sometimes, oftentimes do. I'm going to help just enough to make me feel a little bit better, but then go on about my own business and routine and responsibilities. You know, the easy thing, as I said, would have been for the Samaritan traveler to have simply done enough to ease his own conscience and pay for the immediate needs of the man and then just simply disappear and feel great about himself. But he didn't do that. The text says he was going to return to make sure that the man's needs were taken care of by returning later. You know, this wasn't the way that Jesus' audience expected the story to end. The Jewish listeners would have been stunned by the Samaritan's behavior because they're going, this would have been the most unlikely person to do this kind of act of kindness, to model the love of God. And it's into the moment of silence, I think at the end of that story, that Jesus inserted his own question back to the, the entire audience that was there. Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the expert in the law replied, and I think at this point... The lawyer is so bothered by the story, so put off by the story, because of the Samaritan turns out to be the hero, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And so he says, it's the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you, you, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And there's a clear directive that Jesus is giving to the lawyer and to us today. And that's this. That our behavior toward people should follow the model behavior of the Samaritan. But more than that, it needs to model the love of God and how he has been self-sacrificing for us. You know, as we are living life, let's show mercy to those in need, giving to them what they may not deserve, but what they need. This traveler, you know, may not have been may not have had the greatest sense about traveling that road at maybe the time of day that he was traveling because it was a notorious place. And the Jewish leaders there, the the priest and the Levite may have said, you know what, he deserves what he got because he shouldn't have been traveling alone. But you see, when we're living a life of grace and mercy and modeling the love of God, we need to make sure that we give to people what they may not deserve. That's grace and mercy, getting what we don't deserve. 
but giving what they need. That's mercy. That's grace. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question really is, to whom can I be a neighbor and show grace and mercy to? It's not who's my neighbor, but to whom can I show grace and mercy and love to? Instead of trying to so tightly define who you're supposed to love and care for and watch over and respond to, Jesus says, don't go there. Don't go there. Modeling the love of God doesn't, isn't about checking boxes and finding that I've completed these things or knowing just enough to get by. God wants us to love extravagantly, to model his love, which was, was it extravagant or was it just enough? It was extravagant. It's how God wants us to model our lives. The three passerbyers that day, they saw the same thing. A man beaten, brutalized by the side of the road, right? But then again, they didn't see the same thing. The priest, the Levite, they saw a burden. They saw an inconvenience. They saw a problem. They saw racial hatred driving their decisions. The Samaritan saw something entirely different. Oh yeah, he saw a man beaten and brutalized, left half dead by the side of the road, but more than that, what he saw was a fellow human being created in the image of God in need of help, in need of love, in need of care. All of God's commands can be summarized in these two principles. Love God. Make that your first priority. Make that your first priority. And when it is, you'll be able to love your neighbor from a pure and a genuine heart. Now, I'm going to leave the story and I'm going to learn some other, what I think are additional, very practical lessons for living and modeling the love of God. The first practical lesson, there's been some along the way here, but let me sort of, sort of, you know, narrow some of this stuff down here for us. How do we model the love of God? First, understand that doing acts of love and kindness are good. They really are. But having a loving disposition or character out of which acts of love flow naturally, that's what is best. Doing those acts of love and kindness are good. They're necessary. They're important. We'll have a a full life, as we heard earlier. But having a loving disposition or character out of which acts of love flow naturally, that's what is best. You see, God doesn't want to help me do loving things a little bit more frequently. As good as that might be. What God wants to do is He wants to change my capacity, He wants to change your capacity to love others so that love more naturally flows from my heart, even towards those situations and people that may be unlovely and difficult. But I have discovered that I don't usually have the capacity in and of myself to love like that. I've had to learn to rely not on my own efforts to love like God, wants me to love, but on Jesus Christ's ability to love through me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, write that verse down. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so based on this verse, I have had to learn to rely not on my own efforts to love like God wants me to, but on Jesus Christ's ability to love through me. And when I am focused first on loving God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and I'm living in a growing intimate relationship with Him, then I will have a heightened sensitivity to the needs of those around me, and the Holy Spirit has a freedom to lead and guide in my life in ways that He wouldn't otherwise, because if I'm not living in a right relationship with my God, if I'm not sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life, if I'm not first focused vertically on my walk with Him, then horizontally things are going to be screwed up, and I'm not going to be loving the way God wants me to love. So, just doing acts of kindness, those are good. But having a loving disposition or character out of which acts of love flow naturally, that's what is really the best. You see, before I can genuinely love others with pure motives, I must first be passionately loving God. Because it's out of the overflow of my love for him that God uses the overflow of that love to impact the lives of other people. And oftentimes we get this so messed up because it's all about just doing all of those good things in our own strength and our own effort. You know, I've discovered that when I'm not very loving toward other people, I'm not really loving God like I should. I've discovered that when I'm impatient... My wife can attest to this. <laughs> when I'm impatient, when I'm angry, uh, when I intentionally neglect coming alongside her or others, and I check my own heart, I'm going, I'm not really walking in intimacy with my God like I should. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. Now realize, fruit on a tree is a byproduct of what? Of a healthy tree that is rooted in good soil, well-watered, properly pruned, and fertilized. If all of that is happening, then the natural byproduct is healthy fruit. But when the tree is not healthy, it doesn't produce good fruit. When we're not walking in a healthy, dynamic, passionate love for Jesus Christ... When we're not walking in that kind of a way, then the fruit of our life is just rotten fruit. Just rotten fruit. The second thing I want you to understand here is model God's love without partiality. Because that's how God loves. Model God's love without partiality because that's how God loves. You know, the true test of love is not whether we can love those whom we know. Because that's really easy to do. And and those... People typically love us in return. You see, the story of the Good Samaritan is all about showing love and kindness to those whose needs we see regardless of our connection to them and whose need we're in a position to meet. It's really kind of the answer to the question, who's my neighbor? My neighbor, your neighbor, is anyone whose need I see and whose need I am in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. And it's regardless of our connection to them. You know, Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. I love this. If all you do is love those who love you, 
Do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. You see, in most churches, people are usually kind and very generous to each other. And in this church, Harvest Bible Chapel, I've seen how you've demonstrated an amazing level of love and compassion towards one another. I mean, our impact groups have just done incredible things to care and love for one another. And that's great. But the question is, are we showing the same kind of love and kindness to strangers as individuals? Even if they don't look like us, act like us, dress like us, smell like us, think like us, believe like us, will we show them the same love of Jesus Christ? It's easy to love those who are like us. It's easy to, though, it's easy to love those who love us back. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't add any more details to the story by saying that afterwards there was this great reunion of the Samaritan and the man who had been beaten by, but, you know, left half dead by the by the side of the road doesn't go there because that's really not what's important you see modeling the love of god and this church here has modeled the love of god in incredible ways with what we have going on by way of our missions outreach into the richland bottoms area the creve core area and other communities the way in which we have gone about at christmas time and, and have done our harvest giving tree and I mean, this church has been incredible in that way. I guess the challenge for me and the challenge for us, let's take it to some new levels. We've got backpacks that are going to be distributed today to, to kids in, in, uh, in East Peoria and in other areas. I think we came close to 300 backpacks. Is that awesome or what? That's probably close to $10,000 of school supplies and resources that are being given out today, this afternoon. And pray that as those backpacks and and things are given out that they would be given out in the name of Jesus Christ and in his love. Well, there's a homeless woman in New York City that was turned away by a church, probably not a Harvest Bible Chapel church, but wrote this poem. I was hungry and you formed a humanitarian group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to the chapel and you prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, he said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. We must love without partiality. That's how God loves, without partiality. The third thing I want you to understand here is that give God credit for modeling your life of love. Give God the credit for modeling your life of love. This is extremely important because what's the difference What is the difference between a non-believer's random acts of kindness and our performance of an intentional act of kindness? As followers of Jesus Christ, the goal of our kindness must be that God receives the honor and the glory for our good deeds. Jesus spoke of giving a cup of water in his name, and, and that's really the key because 
If you don't connect your act of loving kindness to God, the recipients of that kindness are going to glorify you and not the God that you serve. The God that's motivating to live a life of love that, that models that. We do acts of kindness not for what it does for us. That's narcissistic. And I've heard people say oftentimes, man, I just felt awesome when I did that. And I'm going, well, that's good. But why not? Man, that was so awesome that I was able to share why I did this because of God's love that he expressed and given to me. Several years ago, I was in San Diego, California, attending the pastor's conference. And during those several days I was there, God was doing incredible work in my heart and life. And he was revealing and he was just stripping away things that I had been ignoring in my life for years. And God was reshaping my heart at that conference. It was incredible. It was a hard time, but it was a good time because of what was going on inside of me. And well, the conference had ended and I went to get some dinner by myself. And and I began to walk to an outdoor food court, which was not far from the hotel. And to get to the food court, you had to cross a footbridge. Well, as I approached the bridge, I could see that there was a young man in his mid-twenties asking people for money. We've all been there. And you know the typical response of most people, it's like, great. Here we go again, someone too lazy to work or someone trying to take advantage of people. And so as I got closer to him, I reached into my pocket and I fumbled through it and I pulled out some change and I gave it to the guy as, as I walked by him thinking that I was just doing my Christian duty. But when I had taken just a few steps past the guy, it was as if the Holy Spirit had just kind of hammered me and said, Kent, wake up, stupid. Here you were just talking about, and, and I was just doing all this kind of stuff in your heart and your life, and you just walked by this guy and just gave him the leftovers in your pocket. It's like the Holy Spirit was saying, Kent, do something more. So I went back to the young man and I asked him, I said, do you have dinner yet? He said, no. And so I said, well, do you want to join me for dinner? And we'll come to find out as we sat and had dinner at a Chinese restaurant there, this young man had been kicked out of his home by his parents because of his drug and alcohol addiction. He was now living on the streets. He was in drug rehab. He'd gone back to junior college. He was trying to get his life put back together to the best of his ability I said, but don't your parents know what you're trying to do here? And he said, yeah, they don't care. They said, I've lost their trust long ago. As we sat there and talked that evening, I asked, or he asked me, he said, you know, so why'd you invite me to dinner? And not just maybe come back and give me more money. And I said, well, because if you were my son, and you were going through what you've told me, I would hope that somebody would be kind and gracious to him and take some time to really care about him. And I said, but more than that, because God has been incredibly gracious to me as a follower of his, he's given to me much more than, than what I deserve. And as I began to talk spiritual things, the conversation kind of went... <laughs> But the seed, I think, was planted, knowing that my act was connected to my God. And I wish I could say that, and the story ended gloriously as, we, as he bowed his head and we prayed. It didn't happen that way. 
But that shouldn't stop us from ever reaching out to others in need. In John chapter 4, verse 20, we're told, if anyone says that I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. So what is God saying to you today? How are you loving God? How are you loving those around you? Are you modeling the love of God in such a way that others can see Jesus in you? Let me encourage you to give Jesus permission to love through you to those whom he brings across your path and then to sensitize you to that moment. And remember, rarely do these kinds of loving actions come packaged to fit our carefully planned schedules. You see, we can't truly love our neighbor, those in need around us, without first loving God completely. Let God love through you this week. Let him love through you this week as you first passionately love and worship him with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Would you pray with me?